welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talk to Dr. Mike Moffitt, who is the Senior Director of Policy and Innovation at the Smart Prosperity Institute, and he's an Assistant Professor in Business Economics and Public Policy at the Ivy Business School at Western University. With a title this impressive, you have to be good, and Moffitt is good on the subject of housing in Canada. So good that municipal leaders, including our own mayor, Cam Guthrie, are consistently seeking out and heeding his advice. As you may know, Ontario has set the goal of building 1.5 million houses in the province by 2031, and Guelph's share of that is 18,000. But there's a difference between setting a goal and having the means to reach it. And that's where Moffat has some concerns. And we should all probably listen to them. The best housing advice possible is the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. Mike Moffat was a special presenter at a Guelph City Council meeting in February, and it was kind of eye-opening. The meeting was about Guelph's signing of the Housing Pledge, our promise to the province that Guelph will facilitate 18,000 new homes by the year 2031. Moffat explained to Council, though, that the 1.5 million target for Ontario, while being about right, also left him wondering if it was also on the low side in terms of expectations. He pointed out that Ontario's never built more than 850,000 homes in a 10-year span, and it's been 40 years since the last time the province was able to build more than 750,000 homes in a decade. He also noted that the issues with housing are multifaceted and multi-level. These are issues that the municipality can't resolve alone no matter how many legislative changes that the government of Ontario passes. So what makes Mike Moffat such an expert? Experience. From 2013 to 2015, Moffat served as an economic advisor to Liberal leader Justin Trudeau. That was before he was Prime Minister, by the way. In 2017, he was the Chief Innovation Fellow for the Government of Canada and advised Deputy Ministers on Innovation Policy and Emerging Trends. He's also been the Interim Director of the Lawrence National Centre for Policy and Management, the Director of Policy at Canada 2020, and the Chief Economist at the Mowat Centre at the University of Toronto. At the Smart Prosperity Institute, Moffat focuses on the intersection of regional economic development, building child-friendly, climate-friendly housing and communities, and clean innovation. And if you're wondering how that intersects with housing, well, we're going to talk about that on this week's edition of the Guelph Politicast. We're going to dig in with Moffat and follow up on some of the things that he talked about at our city council meeting earlier this year. We will talk about whether any municipality will be able to achieve their housing pledge, whether they've been set up to fail, and what would happen if municipalities told the provincial government to just shove it? We will also talk about the role of developers in reaching the pledge's goal, the role of other groups like upper levels of government and post-secondary institutions, and the various tools that we're not talking about, which might also accelerate housing starts. And finally, we will discuss why the lack of mobility in the market is a big problem, how we can address immediate housing needs right this minute, and how we may have come to this problem maybe too many years too late to properly address it. So I caught up with Mike Moffat last week via Zoom. Okay, Mike Moffat, thank you so much for hopping on with me today. Well, thank you for having me. First, let's just 
establish your bona fides for for everyone um why is everyone talking to you when they're talking about housing what what makes not just not to make this sound you know like i'm you know, trying to determine why I'm having you on my own show, but what makes you an expert? <laughs> that, that, that is a good question. I often wake up in the in the morning and uh, ask myself that uh, because my background actually is not housing; it's uh, manufacturing and, and international trade. Uh, I got into this area somewhat accidentally about uh, five years ago. Uh, we were doing uh, some research projects about uh, labor shortages uh, in the GTA, particularly labor shortages in manufacturing and warehousing near Pearson airport. Okay. And uh, so a lot of, uh, a lot of focus groups, round tables, that kind of thing. And one thing that we kept hearing over and over from employers was that we can't find workers for these jobs because nobody can afford to live near Pearson airport for the types of, of wages uh, in the, in the sector. And after you hear something 20 or 30 times, you start to think, okay, well, maybe there's something there. So over the last four or five years, I've transitioned into doing a lot more housing work and, and shifted away from, from labor work. And I guess it's gotten noticed. Uh, you know, I get I get a lot of calls uh, from media, from, from policymakers and, and that sort of thing. Uh, you know, partly to describe how, you know, how bad the situation is, or in some geographies, maybe not so bad. And, and start to uh, start to work on solutions. So that's kind of how I got here. But yeah, I would have been, uh, you know, if we had this conversation five years ago, and you and you would have asked me what I'd be doing in 2023. It probably <laughs> wasn't probably wasn't this. And, uh, you know, I, I would have uh, would have been really scared to hear about the pandemic if you had told me that in uh, 2018. Yeah, I don't blame you. Um, pro it's the same for me, too. I wanted to let me attack this from you know your experience there first, which is um, that was kind of the canary in the coal mine, and and it's kind of I'm wondering if that's still a factor here when we're talking about all these available jobs, the job market. You know, we have all these open positions, and you know, it also occurred to me too, um, traveling around in the last couple of months, uh, being on the road. You go into an on route center and. You see help wanted signs all over, like at the all the all the various kiosks, and it, you know it struck me there too. And I was talking to my sister after we were leaving. It's like you know they, they're kind of swamped for help, but I mean, no one lives around an en route. There's no public transit to any en routes, and I and I'm thinking like a lot of these things are connected, right? That just a lot of these jobs, um, the wages, the the accessibility. This isn't just a housing problem, right? No, it, it's not. It's this larger problem of sort of a, a lack of infrastructure. Um, so that's not just housing. That that's transit, as you you, you point out. It's, it's any number of things, and it's causing this kind of disconnect between where people are living and, and where the jobs have to be. So one example is uh, a person I met in Windsor, Ontario, who uh, works at one of the big warehouses near near Paterson Airport. But lives in Windsor, Ontario. Which, mm. if you've ever done that drive, that's that's about three and a half, four hours. And what this gentleman does um, is he'll drive up every Sunday night, uh, stay there for the week, either you know uh, sleep at a friend's house or, or too often sleep in his car, and then drive back. Um, and that that's a problem. In an ideal world, he should be able to take his family. 
move uh, move to Mississauga or move to Brampton or, or wherever else and, and, and take that job. But he can't do that just because of a, a lack of housing. So it causes, you know, this it's a labor market issue, but it's just a quality of life issue as well, where people are having to do these long commutes or they're not uh, they're not able to take the jobs um that uh, they're most qualified for just just because of logistics and that ends up hurting all of us right. uh, i'll give another example so we wrote a report at spi called who will swing the hammer looking <laughs> at labor shortages in in hamilton ontario um and what we're seeing in in places like hamilton is it's still if you are sort of a middle class professional you can still live in hamilton fairly reasonably until you have kids. And mm-hmm. what we're seeing is that you've got these families who who have children who are, are about to have kids and they move out of the city. They they move to a Brantford, a Thorold. So they, you know, either they're moving kind of southwest or 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 they're moving east to the Niagara region. And it's a lot of nurses and teachers and that kind of thing. And in theory, they're still in commuting distance. And a lot of them will, will move to a place like Brantford and you know, let's say you're a nurse and you, you move to Brantford and you'll still commute in. But what's happening is a lot of those nurses will realize like, hey, wait a sec, Brantford needs nurses too. Like, why right. am I spending 45 minutes commuting each way if I could just, you know, work at a, a local clinic, local uh, local doctor's office, what have you, my commute goes down to 10 minutes. So what you're seeing is these labor shortages in, in sort of more expensive areas like, like Hamilton, uh, because people are first moving to Brantford and then working there. I'm not as familiar with the the Guelph situation, if that's happening, if people are moving to St. Mary's or, or, or someplace, I, I don't know. But that is that is certainly the risk, that people move to less expensive centers and then the more expensive centers lose that labor. And when you're talking about healthcare professionals, that affects all of us. Yeah. I think that is happening. At least I know anecdotally, you see people talking about buying homes in Alora or Fergus or um, Elmira, Center Wellington, you know, Puss Lynch, you know, the places that are sort of around the urban Guelph area that and I guess probably in between uh, KW and, and Waterloo region as well. Um, let's talk about the pol- the politics of this, too, and and. As, as I was explaining before we started recording, a lot of this is based on your delegation to Guelph City Council earlier this year. And this sometimes happens to me where I sit in the, the little media box and think about the questions I would ask if I were on council to some of the delegates. But uh, I was thinking about this one as sort of like a big overarching question that I, I thought would make a good first question about the politics of this, which is, have municipalities been set up to fail with the housing pledge, do you think? Well, a little bit, I would think, particularly the um, smaller and, and mid-sized uh, municipalities. Uh, so the housing pledge is basically um, the province, uh, the provincial task force that Ford set up said that we need 1.5 million homes uh, built across the province over o- over the next 10 years. We did our own. I was skeptical of that number. So we did our own kind of back of the envelope type study, found it's like, no, actually, that seems pretty accurate. So what the what the province did is for the 29 uh, largest slash fastest growing municipalities, each one of them got a target. Uh, so I think Wells is about 18,000 mm-hmm. a year. 
The challenge is they don't really necessarily have the tools to get there. Uh, one of the things that municipalities like to point out is they don't actually build homes. Right. So they can, you know, do things like like change zoning and things like that. And I, they need to do those things. Um, I, I would argue that they're necessary, but they're not necessarily sufficient. Um, so it is it is a bit of a challenge for them. And I think just overall, achieving affordability is is going to be a challenge for cities. So let's let's go back to my Hamilton example. Brantford could, you know, have world class best practices in, in zoning and regulations and approvals and all of it. All it's going to do is get more families moving there from Hamilton and Toronto and Mississauga, <laughs> right? They're never going to get a more affordability, right? Just, right. just um, so it's why we need um, an approach at the provincial level, at the and and sometimes at a federal level. If we're talking about federal policies, just because you do have those, as, as economists call them, externalities, right? That if if the big uh, big municipalities in a region aren't doing what they need to do um it doesn't really matter what the smaller ones do they'll never be able to achieve that that affordability so i would say yes i i think there is uh there the municipalities are getting set up and it's kind of a um a no-lose situation for the ford government that if if municipalities hit these targets we build a lot of housing then obviously the provincial government is going to take credit for that right if, if we don't then the Ford government can say, well, I told these guys, I gave them targets, I gave them strong mayor powers and all these things. This is on them, not me. So they've they've from a political point of view, they've they've got this really nice situation where, you know, heads I win, tails you lose kind of thing, where they're they're uh, creating the conditions where it's harder to to pin the situation on them. There's also the political reality. It's it's two elections from now and no no one party wins an election wins elections forever. Um, I asked this question to my local MP just to see what kind of his reaction would be. And I want to I want to ask it from you, given you're from the kind of business side of things. What would happen if the federal government just said we're going to nationalize construction for five years? Everyone with a hammer. You're now a government employee. We're going to take all available government land we're going to build houses on it we're going to do that for five years so that we can make just affordable housing that people can afford that's attainable and then you can go back to building all the for-profit housing you want what would happen uh, that, that's a good question <laughs> i i think there might be some constitutional issues uh there but 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 i do think you know i i i think the the the, the federal government could do something along those lines that that is a, a little uh less bold where where certainly they can go out and, and build uh build a bunch of uh a bunch of housing um the challenge there's going to be challenges there that, that that partly you just have a labor constraint right that, mm. that if we keep doing things the way we're doing that you eventually run out of electricians and roofers and uh, plumber and that's why we uh labeled our report or named our report who will swing the hammer because that's right. actually one of the big problems in hamilton is all the carpenters are moving to uh calgary and edmonton and, and cheaper locations so you run into a a labor constraint and the, and one of the biggest challenges on, on affordability um that we're seeing across the region is just the cost of land right that that even if the structures you're you're, you're building the structures relatively inexpensively the land itself has appreciated in value uh 
just because there's a, a limited supply of it, uh, you know, partly that's a function of geography and partly that's a, a function of decisions uh, we've made, like like urban growth boundaries and so on. So I do think there is a larger role for uh, government coming in and, and building more housing. I think particularly now where we're seeing the private sector take their foot off the gas a little bit because of higher interest rates um, you know, other sort of bottlenecks. I do think there is a role for government to fill in those blanks, but, you know, should they go around nationalizing everything? Probably, <laughs> probably not, but I, but I don't think we have to. I mean, we built, you know, we built a lot of houses in the forties and fifties. We didn't nationalize the sector. We built a lot of apartment buildings in the sixties and seventies. We didn't have to nationalize the sector. So I think we can make progress without, uh, you know, without quite going that far. <laughs> I just wanted to go right to the edge. But uh, I, you talk about the role of government. I'm curious about the role of developers because, I mean, I see that in, you know, social media posts and talking to people who, you know, well, oh, they're greedy and, oh, their city council's in their pocket. And it, it there, there's really like this negative cast upon developers and i think a lot of that's probably overplayed um but i think i understand where it's coming from because i mean speaking as a as a reporter i go to city council once a week where all this stuff is talked about in the open activists of course want to talk to reporters so they can promote their issues out in the open developers don't have to do that you know they don't have to talk to media about well what we want to do with this project is xyz I'm curious about your thoughts about what the role of developers should be and given the crisis. Well, I, I do think that they have a role. Uh, like, obviously, um, if we look at Canada um, built wide, that about three and a half percent of our housing stock is kind of social housing, co-op housing, that kind of thing. So sort of private sector developers are going to be about 96% of the, the solution. And, and maybe if we, you know, really, maybe not nationalize like the previous question, but if we really <laughs> ramped up social housing, there's still going to be about 90% of uh, of development. Um, so they, they play a big role. And, you know, I don't think we can, should generalize just the same way. That I don't think we should generalize between, you know, 444 different municipal governments. You know, right. some of them are good, some of them are bad developers are the same way. But I think overall, the way we've set up this system in Ontario has really created the conditions for backroom dealing. Like, like mm. if you're a developer, the only way you get things done, right, is by having a municipal government make a bunch of decisions which are inherently subjective in nature. If you were trying to create a uh, a system that lent itself to corruption, that's how you would do it. Where <laughs> where basically, uh, you, you know, if you want to get something done, you you have to go through uh, a set of individuals, and their thumbs up, thumbs down criteria is almost entirely subjective. So I think we should be uh, somewhat skeptical or or concerned about the relationship between developers and, and politicians, but it's a function of how we set up the system. And I think if we want to get away from that, we need to develop more objective systems where developers right. can do things by right. And if there's something that they, they uh, you know, that's something that's out of bounds, there should be hard and fast rules saying, no, you can't do that. Not no, you can't do that unless you give so much campaign contributions to the right uh, municipal politicians and 
and so on. So we've, de- you know, we've developed a, a system um, that sort of invites itself to these problems. And I'm, to be honest, I'm frankly surprised it works as well as it does. I'm actually <laughs> surprised it's not more corrupt right. uh, than, than, than it is that I think there's actually something in the character of Ontarians that despite the fact we've set up such a system that, that lends itself to graft, it's you know does it happen yes but it's not nearly as bad as i think it could be well at the same time though i wonder if some of that stuff is kind of like out in the open um not to say that developers are corrupt or i'm going to get to the olt but not or the olt is corrupt but i mean we see that happen a lot developers go to city council city council makes a determinant based on a variety of criteria um sometimes it's you know concerns about neighborhoods sometimes it's concerned about servicing or or what have you, the, the project then goes to the OLT, and the OLT usually does a, a thing where they find like a compromise or impose a compromise. It's Instead of 23 stories, it's going to be 18 stories or something like that. And a lot of people come out of that, well, you know, what, what the heck is this public process for then? And again, it, it, it may not be like actual corruption, but it kind of looks like corruption to th- those residents who were concerned about the project in the first place right yeah it, it does because if you again if you look through the, the the project so you might have uh you know you might have some piece of land that that's zoned for 12 stories and you know t- to take your example let's say the uh developer wants 30 the city saying well no it's zoned for 12 but maybe we'll give you i don't know 16 or something they negotiate, it gets to 23 and, you know, residents are like, what the heck? This is only <laughs> supposed to be 12 and now it's some arbitrary number, which we can't figure out. Um, uh, and then it goes to, you know, or 18 or whatever your example was. And then it goes to OLT and then it's some other number like 23, which again is completely arbitrary. Right. So I get why residents, you know, first of all, get upset about the system, right? That, uh you, you know, like, let's say, um, you know, let, let, let's say it's a, a parking bylaw and, you know, it says, okay, you can't park your car outside between midnight and 6 a.m. As a resident, I can't go, you know what, actually, I would like to, could you change that? But just for me, could you make right. it between 2 a.m. and, and 3.30? And then I negotiate something with this, the city and then I still don't like what it is or somebody doesn't like what it is and goes through the other system. You know, it's like, no, that's not how it works. It just, you can't park here. We don't have different rules for every individual, right. but unfortunately in planning that that's how it works. And it invites, uh, you know, it invites these, these concerns. And part of the problem with planning. And I sometimes hear this at our own local city council is uh, if I'm building a pro uh, a building, let's say a 16 story building at 23 fake street. And we've already approved, you know, 12 to 20 story buildings at 19 13 10 and 5 fake street i can't take into account we've just approved a bunch of really tall buildings and that that's going to put pressure on the street in terms of traffic in terms of servicing every application has to be seen on its own and not as part of the 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 area whether that's the street or the neighborhood or even the whole city yeah exactly so there's all of these kind of works to to zoning and, and planning and <laughs> the, the one that always gets me is we always talk about wanting wanting more density um yet you know i you can 
in in most cities in Ontario, you could you know tear down a wartime bungalow and build a McMansion, uh, you know that uh, uses like sixty percent of the lot and you know so tall or whatever. Uh, but if you if you build the exact same property but but split it into two units or or three units, despite it taking up the exact amount of, of space, maybe you can put the doors on the side so there's still only one front door. You can't do that, even though yeah. we say we we say we want the latter, not the former. Uh, but the rules allow for the former. So so absolutely, there's just all it's this system like like many kind of regulatory systems. It just kind of evolves over time. And the sort of outcomes it rewards isn't necessarily the ones that you would want it to reward if you were designing the system from scratch. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if these are like it questions with quick answers, but we're going to see if we can go through them quickly. But okay, so um, we'll do a lightning round here. Okay, I was trying to avoid the word lightning round because I did. I don't want. I don't want to put pressure on you. Yeah, no um, worries. <laughs> but I, I've heard a lot of people talk about telling the Ontario government to shove their housing pledge. We're not going to pl play that game. I mean, Guelph's already approved our housing pledge, but I, I have heard people say, no, we need to like take it back. Um, is that a reasonable response to your mind? Like, should we, I mean, at the end of the day, it's aspirational, right? There's correct me if I'm wrong. There's really no punishment set up yet for if we don't make the housing pledge. Yeah. So there, there isn't, uh, there's talk that there might be some, uh, in the future, as, as well as uh, maybe some benefits if we go above and beyond. But but right now, it's uh, there's no there's no penalties or rewards. Uh, twenty eight of the twenty nine municipalities ended up signing it. There was one that didn't. I think it was it was one in York region. I believe it was Newmarket, but I'm not one hundred percent sure. And their reasoning was was around I think municipal infrastructure. I think it was like wastewater infrastructure or something like that. But right. Uh, for the most part, uh, cities have signed this. I, I think because um, the uh, you know the the right now the the sort of risk of doing so is real really low. There's no penalties, and if you don't, uh, there's concerns that there could be a blowback from the provincial government. Again, for instance, the the one city that didn't sign uh, that that pledge was the only one where the mayor did was not given strong mayor powers. So. Right. The four governments already sent this signal that hey, you know, play ball or 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 else. I was wondering too, and this came up at, at your delegation. How much of this problem is not so much people trying to get into the market, but I guess how the the, the market is kind of log jammed. Th this idea that you know older Canadians who maybe want to move out of their big homes, they don't have the uh the real estate options to move um you know there are also people who you know maybe rent houses and you know can't move because they pay less rent on their house right now than they would pay if they moved into a two bedroom apartment today how much of this is just a, a matter of i guess not having that i guess mobility in the market you know and and would ha would loosening that up maybe start creating more solutions yeah, I, I think it, it would. I think there's there's a couple problems we have. That one is the the lack of on ramps for ownership. That it used to be, uh, you could buy a condo relatively inexpensively, build up some equity, and then use that as the the, the down payment on uh you know more of a family sized home. Can't really do that anymore. That now that you know condos are going for four, five, six hundred thousand. 
And as well, that we don't have the off-ramps that if you are a senior, let's say you're 78 years old, uh, you know, living in a single detached home, it's really hard to sell that thing and find somewhere to go to, right? We yeah. don't have uh, those units. So what, and it's not a particularly efficient use of space when you have people who, uh, you know, are in a four-bedroom house, they, they live alone, Um they would love to sort of get out of that and get something smaller. So, so absolutely it's kind of locked up the system. And now with higher interest rates, a lot of people won't move because once you, once you move, you're going to be getting a, a new mortgage at a higher interest rate. So the right. whole system is just log jammed right now. And it's a real, real problem. This is a part of it uh, too, which is, it's a question I've long had about, about the situation the idea is to bring prices down in the long term and that's why we're talking about creating more supply more supply means we're going to bring prices down but what happens to the people who are buying today the people who are buying you know detached homes for a million million and a half when the the, the, the housing prices start coming down aren't we kind of creating problems for those people on the back end well, we, we certainly could be. And we, we kind of saw a bit of that, that the prices are down from the, the, the peaks during during the pandemic. So I don't necessarily think we, we have to, you know, sort of crash the market. I, th- I think we could have something that that that, that looks like uh, it looks like the period between about 1991 and 2004, where where prices in, in most of Ontario actually grew l- slower than inflation. So I think we can return to some sensibility in the market, particularly if we return to those on-ramps and off-ramps that if younger people are able to afford their their first condo, build up that equity, they might be then able to get into that single family home, even if that single family home is relatively expensive because Mm -hmm. they've had those years to build up that equity. But you need to be able to allow younger people to buy their first condo at 23 or 24 instead of renting till they're 33 then getting the condo then building up 10 years of equity it just it just doesn't work so i think if we had those on ramps and off ramps uh we could get more people into you know appropriate housing without necessarily having to you know the sticker price go down mm-hmm. but you know from the sound of things that's kind of like a longer term uh something that'll take like as you were saying like 10 years to get going and this is another thing that another kind of conundrum around this i get stuck on we're trying to create more supply that's going to take years like the 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 time horizon for the housing pledge is still 2031 people are struggling today like people can't find place affordable places to live today is there something that we're missing something that we can do in the interim so that we're not saying, oh, don't worry. By twenty thirty one, we're going to have eighteen thousand new units to Guelph, and everything's going to be. Yeah. You're going to. You're going to be. You know, you're going to be having the sigh of relief. <laughs> you managed to make it through, and it. You know, it, there's a big question about how whether people can make it through, though. I, I totally agree, and I, I think there's a couple things that that we can do there in in the interim. And, and first of first is just providing cash to lower income households and renters, and you know we, the federal government's done that. And I think there's more that we can do on portable housing benefits and and things like that. And the second one, which is one that that gets me in, into trouble a lot, but I might as well. I like say it already. It. You like it already. <laughs> um, our rental market has in southwestern Ontario or just southern Ontario in general has gotten out of control 
in part because our college and university enrollments, particularly our international enrollments, have skyrocketed. Right. I think we need to look at uh, pulling pulling those back. Um, you know, that was um, that that's been an issue in in the Guelph area. Uh, I know University of Guelph had an enrollment increase. That one was mostly domestic. And, you know, why the domestic versus international matters is because on the domestic, a certain percentage of their uh, enrollment, they'll still live with their parents. So they don't really have any housing needs. Right. International, like 0% live with their parents. <laughs> so it affects the market more. But, you know, between University of Guelph and, and Conestoga, uh, the, the Guelph campus, um, it's, you know, that's where a lot of the rental demand is coming from. And I think we need to start going, okay, is, you know, having schools grow their international enrollment by 30, 35% a year, which is happening at some Ontario colleges, is that really a sensible and sustainable thing to do? And I've heard, uh, the, uh, immigration minister phrase, uh, minister Fraser federally, speak to this. So I think that is one thing that we could do to sort of ease demand. Because as long as you have 10 renters, you know, all bidding on the same two or three properties, right? rents are going to go out of control. And there's really not not much else you can do about it. And this is, I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why this is so controversial. Um, I know that at the U of G, they haven't done a new residence in probably 20 years and the last time that was like sort of like family townhouses for some of those international students you're talking about like graduate level students um also there's what's colloquially called the heads and beds levy which hasn't changed from i think 1986 where instead of paying property taxes the universities play you know a certain amount per head uh hence the heads and beds it's just it's become increasingly more like municipalities have been kind of uh, subsidizing uh, something that should be under the ministry of what is it? The ministry of university colleges and job training. So yeah, it, they, they keep changing all the, uh, <laughs> all, all the department, yes, but, it, but, it, but, it, but absolutely. And I think it's an underrated uh, or, or underexamined part of uh, our housing crisis, particularly on the rental side. Mm -hmm. uh, you see it a lot. So I agree. I grew up in the east end of London, Ontario, about six kilometers south of Fanshawe College. If I go to, to realtor.ca right now and look at property listings in my old neighborhood, so many of them have turned into uh, in, into rental properties uh, mm -hmm. for for you know investors buying up these single family homes. And this was a this is a neighborhood built in like their uh, early 1950s, mm -hmm. buying up all these single family homes and turning them into student rentals. And just because enrollment at Fanshawe has gone up considerably, so it affects not just the rental market, but you know the. Uh, you know, people who are having kids who would like to to move to a neighborhood like that are getting outbid by investors who are turning these things into student rentals. So I, I think it's a real issue. I think it's a side effect of provincial government policies going back 20 years to saying, you know what, we don't in, instead of directly funding the universities and colleges, um, uh, we're going to hold your funding flat. And if you want more money, you need to bring in more students. And oh, by the way, you can charge six to 10 times the rate for international tuition as you can for domestic. So it's really right. screwed up all the incentives. And I believe it's contributed to a large part of our housing crisis in cities like London and Guelph. Another example of how this isn't just like sort of, this is kind of like a multi-tentacled creature. Um, I want to talk in just a, a, a quick second about 
second, not secondhand rentals, but um, short-term rentals, things like Airbnb and Vimbo and things like that. Have, have people like sort of setting that up as a business for themselves? Has that had a, uh, an impact on housing? It depends. It depends on the market. In certain markets, it, it has. Particularly, like if you're looking at uh, vacation places like like Quinty West, you know, up near right. Kingston and so on. Absolutely, it, it's played a role. Other markets probably less so. Like you know, it is uh, the reason why housing is expensive in Tilsonburg, Airbnb. Yeah, probably not. Mm. I do think these these things are worth looking at, and I, I I do wonder if we should have provisions that like, hey. Once rents start exceeding a certain threshold, let's really start tamping down on on short term rentals. Mm. You know, in cities that have have done like here here in Ottawa, uh, you know, we ha- we have some bylaws, uh, you know, sort of preventing people from renting out entire houses. Obviously, there's questions about how well that's that's enforced and so on. It really hasn't seemed to make a, a difference. I do think it's it's worth looking at. I, I think it's you know if the provincial government was putting in a suite of reforms, I would suggest they would put that in it. Um, I don't think it would have that much effect, but I think if you don't, that people will go, well, why are you, you know, doing all these things? You should just be cracking down on right. on Airbnb. So I think it's in most markets. I think it's overblown as an issue, but you know every little bit helps. And I understand during a crisis, you know, all options should be on the table, except except maybe full nationalization of the housing stock. All all other uh, options should be on the table. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I noted reading about you is, you know, you've kind of looked at, um, not just housing, but sort of you know climate friendly housing and and sort of coal neighborhoods, complete streets, and and things like that. I'm. This is something I was kind of struggling with. Uh, in, in sort of preparing for this, and since you have this expertise handy, I'll ask you directly: the scramble to get to all million and a half homes in eight years is that going to mean sort of sacrificing a lot of these other things you're talking about, like making sure that these are homes for the future that are ready for solar, wind, and making sure that these are like walkable streets? Like the the, the obsession is just going to be like get the houses up and all other things are secondary so that we're kind of making some of those same mistakes as the good old days of sprawl. Uh, there's certainly that, that concern uh, as somebody who lives in, in the environmental movements, uh, you know, the smart prosperity in- Institute looks at the intersection of the environment and, and the economy. And I can tell you that our colleagues are quite worried about this. So I don't, I don't think that has to happen. Uh, but it but it could happen. And that's something that we spend a lot of time thinking about is how do we actually do that? Because you could build, you know, you uh, you could build one point five million homes if you just said, OK, let's let's just abolish the green belt and let's just do what we did back in in uh, back in the 1980s and build a lot of single detached homes. And, you know, you you could have the entire section of the 401 between, you know, Mississauga and London just be a sea of single detached homes. But that would be a horrible idea. So I do think we need to um, plan for this. And that's, you know, partly, as you mentioned, like, what are you building? You know, what what types of homes, you know, is, what, you know, does it have solar? Uh, is it using heat pumps? That kind of thing. Um, but a lot of our GHG is also just uh, emissions are coming from where the house is, right? Like, is it is it on a transit line? Is it in a walkable neighborhood? Uh, so I don't think we can forget these things. And I think if we plan sensibly, we can have both of those at the same time. And 
Uh, this is a little sort of spoiler. That's actually what I'm going to be spending most of my fall doing. We're launching a, a new initiative in a few weeks just on exactly that question, because that is a top of mind uh, concern for uh, for not just environmentalists, but but a lot of uh, Canadians who want to make sure that we achieve our GHG targets. Mm-hmm. It just strikes me as like there's not a lot of guidance in terms of how to get to one and a half million homes and and a lot of this too it this is something again i i think about is you know there are a lot of places here in guelph that are brown fields that need remediation there's no provision in any of the legislations that's been passed to give money to municipalities to make plots of land that are serviced that you know are in the center of town or in you know the center of neighborhoods you know, so, some cases are, you know, several hundred square meters uh, in size and but they need to be clean before they can build on. And, and um, otherwise, this is this is kind of like ready to go land, but there's no provision in the, the, the legislation to sort of make that ready to build on. And that seems like such a simple thing, at least to me. No, I, I think you're right. And I think those are the kinds of things we, we need to look at. We have the, the same issue in, in London, again, near, near Fanshawe College. There's a lot of places we could build um, that's old industrial land. But, um, you know, there's got issues of, uh, you know, there's an old uh, Westinghouse transformer factory that leaked PCBs all over the place. Uh, oh, wow. All around Peter, Pottersburg Creek. Yeah. And, you know, there had been remediation efforts near the creek, but there's been issues around the the site as well. So yeah, I do think we need to be putting money into that of going, okay, we've got a lot of these brownfield industrial sites that are now actually really good places geographically speaking to build homes because the city's kind of expanded out to where the old industrial districts used to be. Right. But we need to clean up that land. So I think that's the first thing we need to look at. But the second is just the actual building itself, right? Like how to, you know, how to build something um, that is uh, environmentally friendly, you know, uh, doesn't require a lot of labor to build. And you could do that. So for instance, um, there are, you know, mass timber, um, uh, you can build. Uh, so mass timber is basically like this, this pressed wood. Uh, if you design a six story walk up out of mass timber and you do it well, it actually, it, it's climate friendly, but it, it also uses a lot less labor. It's, it's more like uh, assembling Ikea furniture, though a little bit more, more sturdy. Mm-hmm. Um, there are things that we could do to incentivize the building of that kind of thing that back in the 1940s and 1950s, the CMHC had a catalog of housing designs that you could choose from. And if you chose from that, it was, it was much easier to build. We could do that again. The CMHC, the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, could say, look, here's this six-story uh, walk-up using mass timber technology. You know, If you choose this design and, and build it in the appropriate place, not only can you use all these designs for free, but we'll like fast-track your mortgage insurance application. Mm. Maybe we'll give you reduced interest rates, things like that. So there are all kinds of creative solutions that we can have to say, okay, we've got this great building design. Let's put it up in the old industrial brownfields of, of, of wealth in London and Kitchener and, and so on. So I think there's a lot of things we, we we can do. But you're right that we just haven't done those things. We kind of just, it reminds me of climate policy in the 1990s where we just, like we set an emissions target and then wipe our hands and say, okay, yeah, right. we're, we're, we're done. Mission accomplished. We, we need to go from the targets to how we actually get there. We haven't done that yet. I have been in one of those 
factory made houses and that they are pretty impressive um to wrap up because i know you have a, a meeting uh very soon but i wanted to ask sort of a, a i don't know if it's a philosophical question or not but we were talking about looking back hindsight 2020 and all that stuff how much better off would we be today if had in 2003 the ontario government at the time said we're going to set ourselves a goal of building a hundred thousand units a year for the next 20 years we're going to hire a hundred thousand new tradespeople. we're going to get them trained i mean we're, we're kind of in a mad scramble to catch up to what stuff we should have initiated 20 years ago right yeah a- a- absolutely we, we absolutely are that we didn't uh we didn't see this coming um and part of it was just that we didn't sort of update how we were doing things as we made policy changes. So, for instance, again, when, when we liberalized international student reform, uh, international student policy to allow more international students to come in, we didn't change our housing policy. Uh, when we built the green belts uh, to uh, protect, uh, you know, protect really environmentally uh, important land, it was the right thing to do. But we didn't change all of our zoning laws to build more infill. So we right. said, okay, we can't build out, but we can't. So, so a lot of it was that. And now I, I start to think about, okay, if you and I are talking in 2043, what are the things, you know, and it doesn't have to be housing, but what are the things that we are going to wish we have done today? Um, and I'm not sure what the, an- the answer to that question is, but I, I hope this housing crisis starts having us think and asking those questions about like, okay, what, what are the big challenges going to be? 20, 25, 30 years from now, and, you know, maybe it's healthcare, aging population, whatever, what should we be doing today? Because the lesson is those 20 years come a lot faster than you think. Right, right, right. Yeah. I, (laughs) the cynical part of me says that uh, we're going to learn nothing from this crisis as we seem to learn nothing from any crisis, but uh, we'll have to leave it there. But uh, Mike, this was very, very good. Um, I, I like kind of exploring these ideas with smart people who who actually know things and not just people like me who live on their computer all day. But uh, I, I had a lot of fun with this interview. So thank you so much for your time. And I, uh, I'd i like to get a chance to chat again if sometime you're, you're maybe not as busy. But thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. I, I greatly enjoyed it. And once again, that was Mike Moffat. You can learn more about the work of the Smart Prosperity Institute at institute.smartprosperity.com. You can follow Mike Moffat on social media at Mike P. Moffat on Twitter. That is Moffat with two F's and two T's. You can get his insights daily on the housing picture in Ontario. As for Guelph, you can watch Moffat's presentation at the February 28th meeting of City Council on the city's website. And you can also follow the link in the show notes for this episode to go to the city of Guelph's story map about housing in the city. And that is it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. And to learn more about CFRU, go to CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you will get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter or X if, you know, that went through by the time you hear this. 
or you can follow it at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram and threads, and you can send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And finally, for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where we will have a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you next week. And until then, we'll see you next time. (laughs) 